BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Today on the California Report magazine, sometimes it's only after something really terrible has happened that you start to see the signs leading up to it. Years later, Rudy Coronado still refers to what happened as that day. That day, that day. And he still thinks about what he said to his wife. Now I, I really feel stupid for reacting that way. But there are some things you can't take back. And I really regret it. I really regret it. But now it's too late. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. And today, a story about chaos, death, and what happened that day in Los Angeles. But first, a heads up that this story includes descriptions of violence that some listeners may find disturbing. Here's reporter April Denboski. Rudy and Carol first met about 10 years ago in this donut shop in Carson. Rudy used to hang out here with his friends. Carol used to come after classes at Long Beach City College. Rudy made the first move. He folded a piece of paper into a football and flicked it over to Carol. She batted it back and they started talking. When it was agreed they were both baseball fans, they went over to Rudy's place to watch the Dodgers game. Kind of like the first time we went out, she kind of never went back home. She kind of just stayed. Rudy liked how different Carol was. She didn't wear makeup. She wasn't like all into her hair or into her nails or celebrity gossip. or She was not into none of that. Carol had served in the military. She was organized and particular. She always made sure there was a gap in between her foods. Carrots, greens, beans, rice. Nothing ever touched and she would always eat one thing first. She was just as meticulous when they later had kids. Every time she, she breastfed, every bottle that she gave, everything was documented. Documented every time they pooped, how they pooped, everything. It was about three years into their relationship when Rudy proposed. And it was right after that, Carol told him they were going to have a baby, Sophia. And right after Sophia came Yasmin. They called her Yazzie. 
Then right after Yazzie came Xenia. Three daughters in less than three years. I would be walking up the driveway and I already see my faces in the window waiting for me. Smiling, happy, happy to see me. And I would love that. That was the most best feeling in the world for a, for a dad to come home from work. and the, Hi, Daddy. I'm screaming, hi, Daddy. That day, Rudy was outside working on a 68 Chevy truck. Carol was in charge of the girls, as usual. Sophie, the oldest, was two and a half. Yasmin was one and a half. And Zinnia was three months old. That day, Carol was acting, it was, it was acting kind of weird. Rudy Carol says this about weird. 20 times. Carol's acting weird. Carol's acting real weird. I just knew she was acting weird. It was weird. You that day, Carol left a series of voicemails for her mom, unlike any she had ever left before. First message. Mommy, please, call me. Please, please, please. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm hungry. There were four messages like this, with Carol rambling and crying until the voicemail system cut her off each time. End of message. Then there was this. Next message. Mom, please call me. I love you. Bye. After that, Carol barely said anything the rest of the day. When Rudy came inside to get some extra parts for his truck, the house was a mess. Sophie had pooped on the carpet. Carol was just lying on the bed. And I'm seeing the baby running around running around with no diaper and just pooping, pooped everywhere. Rudy started yelling. He yelled at Carol for not cleaning enough, not cooking enough, and for not having a job. Then he said the thing he really wishes he hadn't. I was like, Carol, to, to what extreme is this going to get to? And I regret telling her that, because I don't know if that's what kind of sparked her to do something dumb to do that. Rudy went back outside. He was working on his truck when Carol's mom came over. She went in the house, then ran back out, screaming. Carol had killed all three girls. She took a knife from the kitchen. She stabbed them each in the throat and through the heart. Then she laid them on the bed, in order from youngest to oldest. At first glance, it was weird because I didn't see no blood. I don't remember seeing blood. So when I walked up and I touched Sophie, she was cold. And I was like, fuck you do? I couldn't believe my eyes. Carol looked at Rudy and told him she loved him. Then she put the knife into her own chest. This is Global Telling. You have a prepaid call from Carol Coronado, an inmate at the Central California Women's Facility, Chowchilla, California. Hi, Carol. Are you there? Yes. Hi. Hi. Hope it's okay to talk about some of this stuff. Carol was treated briefly in the hospital for a punctured lung, then taken straight to jail. She was on suicide watch for the next 21 months. 
But that whole time, Carol tells me she didn't know what was going on. The scar from plunging the knife into her chest? She had no idea how it got there. Her memories stop about a week before what happened. She says that's when her brain turned off. That's about the time my brain began to stutter and shut off memory-wise. Before it completely broke. She does remember having nightmares. I was terrified to go to sleep. I wasn't showering, taking a bath, brushing my teeth. I wasn't eating. I wasn't doing anything. She couldn't concentrate. She put socks away in the fridge and milk in the dresser. She felt overwhelmed. Like I was worthless and I'd be better off dead that nobody needed me. But I was nothing. Breaking news at 11, a local neighborhood in shock after three young children are found dead at a home in Torrance. Their mother is under arrest tonight. Deputies say they still do not have a motive for this horrific crime. Only that the motive remains under investigation. Ten days later, still no motive, but the family confirms to NBC4 Carol Coronado showed signs of postpartum, but they didn't know how to read them or what to look for. Family attorney Stephen Allen. We wanted to draw attention to the issue of postpartum depression and psychosis. The first time Rudy and Carol Coronado ever heard of postpartum psychosis was after Carol was taken to jail. Doctors later told them that Carol's break from reality was caused by the hormonal changes from her last pregnancy, the lack of sleep, and the relentless cycle of breastfeeding and caring for three babies under three. Everybody who saw her, all of the doctors, within hours and days of this event found that she had some kind of a psychotic disorder. Psychotherapist Diana Barnes was hired as the expert witness in the case. She says Carol's bizarre behavior, her confusion and detachment, these are all symptoms of postpartum psychosis. She will look disheveled, not just unkempt, but disheveled. She'll start to look glazed over. The way my mind circulates, I was thinking like a demon, like a demon possessed her or something. Because I looked at her eyes and her eyes looked black. If the scientific name for all this was postpartum psychosis, that was fine for Rudy. I seen that, 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 that she didn't mean to do it. Now, now I know that it was the disease. In the U.S., the law has not caught up with the science of postpartum mental illness. England, Canada, Australia, and about 20 other countries all have a specific law for these cases. It says if a woman harms her child within 12 months of giving birth, it is presumed that she suffered from a postpartum mental illness. She is often sentenced to treatment, not incarceration. There's an assumption that something was off. Most of the time, these women are found guilty of manslaughter. And in many cases, they don't even go to prison. In the U.S., the legal system treats women who harm their children the same as it treats trained assassins. Carol was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. Her only option was an insanity defense. And here the odds were against her. Less than 1% of criminal cases end in a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. It's a very, very hard defense to make. Michelle Oberman is a law professor at Santa Clara University. It almost never works in postpartum mental health defenses. Oberman says the legal test for insanity was established in 1843, and it's focused on whether a person knows the difference between right and wrong. In other words, it's a moral test, not a clinical one. 
the test for proving insanity is so out of keeping with the way that we understand how the mind works. A lot of moms who kill their kids attempt suicide at the same time. They start to believe that their children would be better off with them in heaven. Many of these women are sentenced to life in prison or the death penalty. But no one knows exactly how many. The California prison system doesn't track data for this type of offense. So we decided to calculate it ourselves. After nearly a year of collecting and reviewing thousands of court records and news reports, we found more than 100 women are in prison in California for killing their children. 40% of these women took their babies' lives before they were a year old. You're listening to The California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka. This week, reporter April Domboski is bringing us the story of Carol Coronado, a Los Angeles mother who pled insanity after she killed her three young children. April's going to tell us how over the last three decades, it's actually gotten harder to win an insanity defense. Basically, the more we as a society began to understand mental illness, the less willing we became to make any allowances for it in the courts. This is because of what happened in 1981. This is NBC Nightly News. When John Hinckley tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. Reagan. 2.30 this afternoon in Washington, D.C. A fusillade of shots fired at close range. The president is hit, a gunman captured. Psychiatrists said the shooter had schizophrenia. John Hinckley was a 25-year-old with romantic delusions, convinced that actress Jodie Foster would be impressed if he killed the president. The jury found Hinckley not guilty by reason of insanity, and he spent the next 30 years in a psychiatric hospital. Americans were outraged. 38 states rewrote their insanity laws to ensure that another Hinckley would not get off. California was one of them. The state had its own version of the Hinckley case a few years earlier, when Dan White walked into San Francisco City Hall and shot Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk. A growing mental illness, and not the result of premeditation and deliberation, led to the murders of Moscone and Milk, contended the defense. This became the infamous Twinkie defense. Who confirmed White's moods of depression and periodic obsession with junk food. The jury found White guilty of manslaughter and sentenced him to less than eight years in prison. San Francisco erupted. Well, I think he should have had a longer term, because if he was black, he would definitely had it. Much too lenient. Two lives for five years isn't enough. They should put him away, because the thing you got After this, California voters passed a tough-on-crime measure that included an overhaul of the state's insanity defense law. Now, to be found insane, defendants have to prove they didn't know what they were doing was wrong. Which, when you're debating what's going on in the mind of a person with psychosis, is nearly impossible. When Carol Coronado went on trial in 2015, she said she couldn't remember anything from the day her daughters died. The DA said Carol's motive was revenge. She said Rudy was a jerk, leaving Carol in charge of three little girls with no help. She said Carol decided to get back at Rudy by killing their daughters. The lead attorney making these arguments, by the way, was eight months pregnant at the start of the trial. The marriage was not a good one, she said during her opening statement. 
Finances were very, very tough. They were living in this sort of squalid, one-bedroom converted garage. Maybe it was Sophia's potty accident, she said, that pushed Carol over the edge. Or maybe it was the fight, captured in one of the voicemails Carol left for her mom that day. But no, dude, you want to sit here and just not do nothing and complain about everything. That's all you want to do, huh? The DA said the woman on this tape begging her husband for $5 later shapeshifted into a vindictive monster full of rage. The defense said the phone call just shows Carol had all the risk factors for postpartum psychosis financial stress, isolation, and total lack of support. And this is how Carol's trial went. Every move the prosecutor framed as Carol's moral failing, the defense reframed as a clinical symptom of psychosis. Prosecutor said the fact that Carol went back to the kitchen to get another knife during the killings was evidence that she knew what she was doing and knew it was wrong. Defense expert witness Diana Barnes said... That's the disease. In a psychotic episode, these kinds of very methodical, robotic, goal-directed behaviors are quite common. The DA pointed to statements Carol gave to a detective just hours after she was arrested. He asked her if she killed her children to get back at her husband. She said, if that's true, do I get a better deal? When the detective asked her, what do you need from us in order to tell us what happened? Carol responded, bedpan. A psychotic mind has a logic all its own. And what happens in the courtroom is that the state is attempting to use rational, logical thought to explain psychosis, which is illogical and delusional. Barnes says this is the thing about postpartum psychosis that most often gets confused in court, the way the symptoms wax and wane. Because if one moment I'm telling you something, but then in the next moment I can't remember what I just did, that kind of looks like I'm faking it. But it's actually the clinical presentation of postpartum psychosis. This is Global Tell Link. You have a prepaid call from... Carol Coronado. An inmate at the Central California Women's Facility, Chowchilla, California. I talk on the phone with Carol over the course of a couple months before I go visit her in prison. No recorders allowed, so I leave mine in the car. When the guards bring Carol out to the visiting room, I recognize her immediately. She looks the same as the courtroom shot of her that ran in the paper over and over. Straight brown hair, a little greasy, pale skin, and no makeup. We get some food from the vending machines, and I notice Carol eats all her rice first, then all her beans— then the enchilada in the middle. Carol is getting some treatment here, but it's hard to know if it's working. Conversation with Carol jumps around. She easily veers off onto tangents. Sometimes she says things that don't make sense. On other topics, she goes deep into detail. Like the last time her family went to the beach together. Rudy and Sophie went straight for the ocean, but Yazzie stayed with Carol. She liked to run her little rake through the sand, look at the lines, then wipe them flat, and do it again. Carol says Sophie is just like Rudy, social and playful. Yazzie is zen, calm, just like me, she says. But when it comes to that day when they died, Carol keeps telling me she can't remember anything. 
Throughout the trial, Carol says she thought her children were still alive. I literally kept looking for my children having delusions. Having delusions that they were on the other side of the door. That they were going to walk in at any moment and I would be able to hold them. It was her lawyer who told her what happened, the specifics. And I flipped out. I became hysterical and inconsolable. I was screaming. I was in the basement of the courthouse. I did not believe it. What Carol's case came down to was what the judge believed. In the end, he said he thought Carol did suffer from a mental health condition. He said he believed she needed treatment. But because of the way the insanity law is written, he said she would have to get treatment in prison. He sentenced her to three consecutive life sentences. No parole. I don't know how I can sleep at night for what he did to her. Angela Burling thinks the judge in Carol's case got it wrong. Same with the DA. Instead of going for a win, they need to go for what's just and right and fair. Angela once stood before a judge just like Carol did after she killed her son. There were a lot of similarities between Angela's case and Carol's, except one went to prison and the other went home. I couldn't have been more fortunate. It was 1983 in Sacramento, nine months after Angela gave birth to her second child, Michael. She started having strange thoughts. I felt I had a calling to expunge the world of evil. She began to believe her husband was Jesus. She was the bride of Christ, and her baby Michael was the devil. I felt I needed to drown Michael. But then I thought, he'll come back to life. Jeff will raise him from the dead in three days. Then the world will know Jeff is Jesus, and peace will reign. So that's what I did. I drowned him. Her husband got home and called 911. When the detectives came, he pulled them aside. He was a lobbyist in Sacramento, and one of his clients was the California Correctional Peace Officers Association. He asked the police to please take his wife to a mental hospital instead of jail, and they did. Her lawyer asked the DA to charge her with manslaughter instead of murder, and he did. But most important, Angela's account of what happened fit the strict legal test for insanity. She believed her son was the devil and that killing him was the right thing to do. The psychiatrists on both sides agreed she couldn't tell right from wrong. The judge found her not guilty by reason of insanity, and he sentenced her to outpatient treatment, which meant Angela could go home. I feel like what happened to me is what should happen to other women in my situation. Angela recovered. She went back to school for her master's degree in nursing, had another baby, and remarried. I make a case for understanding how it could happen to uh, anybody. I could be your sister or your daughter or your wife. But Angela had money. Her husband had connections in law enforcement. They both had a prior understanding of postpartum psychosis. All things Carol Coronado did not have. Angela believes the way to make things fair for all women is to change the law. I would like to see California adopt something similar to the British Infanticide Act. This is the law in England and two dozen other countries that says any woman who kills her baby can automatically be taken to a hospital rather than jail. Back in 1989, a California senator was so moved by Angela's story, he recommended then that California adopt this law. 
but it never went anywhere. It was a pretty bold resolution. I don't know if society was ready for it then. Do you think society is ready for it now? It, um, it elicits a lot of emotion. Only one state has managed to make a small change. Illinois now has a new law that allows judges to give women lower sentences if postpartum mental illness was a factor in her baby's death. For women who were already convicted, they could get a new hearing and a reduced sentence. It's the first criminal law in the country that actually mentions postpartum psychosis by name. If California follows suit, more than 40 women currently in prison could have their cases reheard. Rudy Coronado is packing up his stall at a flea market in L.A. He's been selling auto parts here for about eight years. Oil and grease, batteries, wiper blades. He says the other vendors are his family now. <laughs> a lot of them, they know, they know me. They knew me. There's a lot of them knew my girls. That's kind of why I'm still here, I guess. To Rudy, this is better than seeing a therapist. What are they going to tell me? That I'm traumatized? I know I am. I know what I hate. Rudy still feels guilty that he didn't know what was happening to Carol. He still thinks about the way he talked to her. So when women's health advocates asked him for help, he said yes. He testified in Sacramento, helping to pass new laws for mandatory maternal mental health screening and training. He tells his story at rallies and forums. I always make it an issue to go and speak to the dad because nobody never talks to the dads. What do you say to them? Like, what do you say to the dads? Postpartum is real. Look for it. Research it. Help your wife. Don't think that she's... This is a famous thing, baby mama drama. Oh, my baby mama's tripping. Now I tell them, oh, your baby mama's not tripping. Your baby mama's going through it. Do you feel like you forgive Carol? I, 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 I don't, I don't know how to answer that because the way I think about it, like, I blame the disease, not Carol. So it's not that I forgive Carol. I kind of somehow not really blamed her. The weekend before Carol's 36th birthday, I went to visit her in prison again, this time with her parents, David and Julie Piercy. They both say Carol doesn't belong here. She had no business going to prison. She should have been in a hospital, period. That's the part that I don't understand why they didn't put her in a medical clinic instead of jail. That's all they wanted from an insanity defense, was for Carol to go to a place where she could get real treatment, not a place where other inmates beat her up and call her a baby killer. They say Carol still says things that don't make sense. She tells us, I'm going to be getting out in a couple of weeks or three weeks or a month. or It's, it's heart-wrenching because I know it's not going to happen. Her dad can't bring himself to say anything in response. But her mom can't help but say something. Okay, Carol. I'll be happy when you get out, sweetheart. Mom's waiting for you. These conversations are too hard for Rudy. 
He doesn't visit Carol anymore. He hasn't talked to her on the phone in three years. He says she's not the same person. Carol still writes to Rudy. He has stacks and stacks of her letters. But he stopped reading those, too. He says she never mentions what happened. She never writes about the girls. She doesn't even write their names. Just draws cryptic images of threes. Three pumpkins, three stars, three hearts with three letters inside. The girls' initials. S-Y-X. That's reporter April Demboski, and this is the California Report magazine. C.O. Muller is our technical producer. Susie Racho is our director. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Kate Wolf helped with research for this story. It was edited by Erica Kelly, Julia McAvoy, and me. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, presenting Tradeoffs, a new podcast that tries to make sense of our costly and complicated healthcare system. Subscriptions at tradeoffs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.